morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 90 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Clarice Lockery. I'm Hannah Flint. And I'm Amon Woman. This week, we discuss Guillermo del Toro's stop-motion adaptation of Pinocchio, Will Smith is fighting for freedom in emancipation, and we explore the secretive world of the Silent Twins. Plus, Amon has been on an interview spree. <laughs> he chats to Brian Tyree Henry about drama Causeway, Guillermo del Toro and Mark Gustafsson about Pinocchio, and director Antoine Fuqua about Emancipation. Plus, we give our hot takes about Wonder Woman 3 after DC <laughs> cancelled it. <laughs> First off, how is everyone doing? It's early. I'm very tired. I'm sorry. Everyone. I'm. I'm. Yeah, we were I'm. This at 8 a.m. on a Saturday. I, and it's my you. fault. And it's my fault because <laughs> Hannah's Hannah's carbon footprint is getting bigger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, because I'm in Iceland currently. Uh, I'm sorry if I sound a bit echoey or um, because they put me in a fucking massive suite. It's like insane. It's bigger than my actual flat. It's really demoralising. <laughs> You know, you go anywhere, you're like, God, why can't this actually just be my home? But what's really interesting, so I found out yesterday that in Iceland, so I'm in Reykjavik, um, I'm doing the red carpet hosting for the European Film Awards uh, this evening, so Saturday night. But like, it's dark outside, and I'm sure it's dark outside where you are, but here it doesn't get light until like 10 a.m. So I feel like I've just like entered like the Josh Hartnett vampire movie and wait like I don't want to go outside until there is a little smidgen of like light breaking dawn. <laughs> and that this is what you watch Blade for, you know. Yeah. We we have the tools, we have, you know, the the know-how to deal with this sort of stuff now. Yeah. You've got garlic, you got the silver weapons, you know. I don't, I don't have know garlic. if you've got the training, but <laughs> can i use like a like a coffee will that do yeah <laughs> i mean good luck to you um i, sh- I nice got my morning. nails done maybe i should do what i uh, should do what the woman king does and like file them down into, like death and just like ah! <laughs> amazing uh but yes uh i too would like your room uh which looks very very cool and spacious from where I'm sat. I know, I'm like, after party at mine? <laughs> no, I've got an early flight. I That's cool with me. Let me, just get, let me just get my ticket. No worries. Have you had Puffin yet? I haven't. Well, because I only arrived really like quite late last night, but I've got, I'm going to hopefully, between rehearsals and stuff, I'm going to like try and have something. Although I've, apparently they eat whale here, but apparently it's imported from Norway. So I'm like, oh, I don't know. It feels like... Hmm. If it's locally sourced, she says, from the person who eats, like, 20 chicken nuggets a week. <laughs> <laughs> I only want locally sourced whale. <laughs> of course, of course. Of course, yeah. I'm from Norway. Yeah. <laughs> not Norwegian, not, not, not that basic Norwegian whale. But, yeah, I'm going to try and have some sort of, like, delicacy. I think I would, it would be remiss of me not to, wouldn't it? Absolutely. I heard it was puffin. That was puffin. They but they do puffin yeah. tours, don't they? They do a puffin tour apparently. Tours. Yeah. Yeah. I just pretend it's like yeah, a. I went when I was a kid. I'll just because I feel like puffins are like the basis for porks, and if it's good enough for Chewbacca, it's good enough for me. <laughs> they were because they couldn't CGI out the puffins, so they just made them porks. Yes. Amazing. Star Wars fact. Love that. Come <laughs> on, what have you been up to this week? Huh. 
Uh, I have mostly been in my room working on uh, a lot of stuff. Uh, I had a lot of deadlines this week, but <laughs> I'm sorry, but I, my mind went outside. I was like, I've mostly been in my room working on a, a lot of stuff. <laughs> oh, God. You're your dirty mind. Look, um, you can take the girl but... out of London, you can't take the horn <laughs> out of the girl. <laughs> Clearly. Um, but I did manage to get myself to Leicester Square. Uh, to have a chat with some Avatar people, because uh, the world premiere uh, was in London uh, earlier this week, so I was covering that for Variety, uh, so I spoke to James Cameron, who was very nice and personable. Um, I wanted to chat with him for much longer than I did, but that was nice. I chatted to Kate Winslet, I chatted to Sam Worthington, Stephen Lang, um, so, so yeah, uh, we will be talking about Avatar next week uh when it is released this comes out on the 16th so um yeah but it was it was fun to to cover that uh, event it's been a while since i've done red carpets and doing that again was a reminder that it's not typically my bag uh I, I, there's some aspects that i love about it but like even though i was with quite a high level outlet variety i still didn't get to talk to everybody that i wanted to talk to um, and I've covered premieres before where I've been in the cold for four hours on the line and have this burden and didn't speak to a single soul. Thankfully, this didn't happen this time. But premieres uh, sometimes from, from our side of things can be frustrating. Yeah, no, that's why I just don't do those red carpets anymore at all. I remember yeah. one time, I think it was like the LFF festival, LFF um, press premiere for Unbroken. So Angelina Jolie waited outside for ages and I was like, crew of it's like, you've got two questions among you all. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, yep. Yep. oh God, no thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Clarice, what but you've been doing? all that being said, Avatar fun. <laughs> um, I went to a comedy show last night. Okay. <laughs> it was really fun. Um, which, uh, shout out Pitch House Central, did a, a lovely uh, night for charity for Refuge with a bunch of comedians. Um, I saw James A. Carrister, my my gremlin king, very funny man. Enjoyed <laughs> him a lot. Um, but now I'm very tired and a little bit hungover. <laughs> this is gonna be a fantastic a pod. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's gonna be great. <laughs> Look, well let's let's kick stuff off with something where I don't have to talk for a bit. Um <laughs> it's <laughs> Here's the trailer for Causeway. I just never thought I would come back here. You don't got love for this city? It's not the city. It's that house. I'm the only one that made it out. I, I got a job. You did doing what? Cleaning pools. What are you doing? Pools. Cleaning them. Hey, look, if it get dark now, you just you just ride it, okay? Yeah. Yeah. How do I do that? <laughs> All right. Uh, what's dark? I work for the Army Corps of Engineers. No, I need them to clear me so I can go back. You got blown up over there. And you want to go back? Those are the car accident. I'm the causeway. I'm kind of on a lot of medication. What kind of medication? 
Like don't shoot yourself in the head kind of medication. Okay. We are talking about it again today because it is now out on Apple TV Plus this week. Um, just in case you need a refresher, this is written and directed by Lina Neubarger and stars Jennifer Lawrence as Lindsay, a US soldier who experiences a traumatic brain injury during her tour in Afghanistan, which forces her to return home to New Orleans. And she struggles to return to her daily life with her mother as she waits for her eventual redeployment and strikes up a friendship with local mechanic James. Uh, and that local mechanic is played by one Brian Tyree Henry, who was in town in the UK. And they're like, Amon, would you like to talk to Brian Tyree Henry? And I'm like, yes, in part because the last time someone asked me to do that was for Bullet Train. And I was all set to do that. I went to the hotel. I actually saw Brian Tyree Henry in the, uh, what's the place called? Not in the interview rooms, but... Corridor? Thank you very much. Goodness me, I'm really waking up. <laughs> I actually saw Brian Tyree Henry in the corridor as I arrived. I was excited to talk to him. I had all my questions prepped. I went for a COVID test. Thought it was going to be all fine. And they said, Lamont, you have COVID. You need to leave right now before you kill Brian Tyree Henry. Uh, so that interview didn't end up happening. But this time, this time it did. Uh, I met Brian Tyree Henry. Did you tell him that? Being like, <laughs> I nearly like, killed you. Like, I didn't want to, like, that's that's not the thing you say to get up on the right foot before the interview starts. <laughs> like, uh, I, sh- I probably should have told him afterwards, but they sort of ushered me out going to get the next guy in. Um, but yeah, he was on fantastic form. Um, we talked about Causeway. We talked about Eternals. Uh, he had some interesting things to say about that. And we talked about Spider-Verse and Spider-Verse 2. Uh, and three, a little bit as well. Uh, very excited for those films because Spider-Verse, for me, is one of the best superhero films of all time. And it was in my uh, sight and sound uh, poll of me saying that. So, um, yeah. Um, it's a fun chat. Me and Brian Tally Henry. Enjoy. Welcome to the Faith Fight Podcast. Brian Tally Henry, how are you, sir? It's a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. The last time you were talking, we were talking about bullet train, we were talking about accents, uh, because you <laughs> did the British accent in that film. We're in the UK right now. Have you felt any urge to no. get back? <laughs> no. I know better. I'm not going to be one of those. I was like, uh, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that everyone here is happy with what I did. No mm-hmm. one has approached me in the street and tried Good. to fight me, so that means that awesome. I did okay. Yep. But I'm not gonna. <laughs> Fair play. Uh, we're here to talk about Causeway mm-hmm. uh, mainly today, which congratulations on the film. Thank I you. loved your performance in it. Thank you. Um, one of the things that I think the film does so well is how it's understated but not underpowered. Hmm. And that brings me back to both yours and Jennifer Lawrence's performance. It's it's impactful, but it's not showy. Um, and I 
feel like you've done that before as well in other films, like I think if, if, if Bill Street could talk, and I would say that about that performance as well. Can you talk about finding and enjoying out those subtleties in your performance? Well, first it has to start with where is the character in, in, that, in that place and time. And mm. I found with James is that, you know, when we first see him, we don't really know much, you know. She comes to his auto body shop for help, and that's all we know. Um, and, and I think that says a lot about people who are dealing with grief because, you know, you just never know what's going mm -hmm. on underneath the surface. We do everything we can to hide our scars most of the time. Uh, and I feel like James was that kind of guy. And so when I read the script at first, I remember it was hard because I wanted to not like him, honestly. Mm. I didn't want to like James because I was like, I, I have this thing about people who choose to stay. Right, like you know, people who have suffered certain tragedies or, cer or certain things and choose to stay in the same place where that happened. Because I myself am a person who's like, if it doesn't work, I'm out. Mm. Like I'm just the guy that's like, if it's not, uh, and and I used to think that that was um, the riskiest thing was to leave. And in mm. essence, the riskiest thing is to stay. Mm. And so with James. I wanted to figure out exactly how to forgive him. And, and if I could forgive him, then maybe in essence, I could help him forgive himself because you know we see this man who is just weighted down by guilt mm -hmm. um, and is weighted down by grief. And I wanted to figure out how to release him of that um, or at least give him a chance to see what's on the other side of that. And um, yeah, it was, it was difficult <laughs> um, mm -hmm. to figure that out, you know, because there were so many things that made me kind of question him. For example, you know, here's this man who suffered this terrible car accident, and he's working out as a mechanic, you know, fixing other people's damage. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, well, what is that about? Mm -hmm. You know, he's an amputee, but then you see in his home that, like, he hasn't fixed the stairs and that there's crutches that haven't been touched. There's no pictures of the family on the wall. He's alone. And I'm like, well, what? How does he navigate all of that? Um, but I found myself worrying too much about those things rather than figuring out how to help him begin mm. again. Um, because I think we meet him in this film feeling like he's the only one for a long time. And then all of a sudden, Lindsay pops up and then you finally see this connection happen for him. You can mm -hmm. see this um, possibility happen for him to actually relinquish himself of that weight and that guilt and actually find a friend. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was like, when's the last time, you know, he shared his CD collection with somebody? Mm -hmm. When's the last time he invited somebody over? So those possibilities excited me for him and, mm -hmm. and that helped me lean in a lot more to caring about him. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I wanted ultimately everybody in the audience to feel for, to feel for him, is mm -hmm. to, to care for him. Mission successful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, you touched on it there, the friendship between uh, James and Lindsay mm -hmm. is fantastic. Um, and I wanted to ask about that because it just struck me as really authentic how that was built from moment to moment. Mm. Um, slowly becoming more and more vulnerable, I guess asking the person without asking them, can you meet me on this level of vulnerability, mm -hmm. which is fantastic. Can you, how did you go about building that trust with Jennifer Lawrence in real life? And then how did that <laughs> inform what you were doing your performances as James and Lindsay. <laughs> Jen is um, unlike anybody I've ever worked with and met. Mm. Um, she is so authentically who she is. She is very outspoken, very brave, 
very creative mm-hmm. and crazy. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, like, that, which are all things that appeal to me um, mm-hmm. because I am, in essence, the same exact damn thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of James and Lindsay's um, relationship grew because our relationship was growing. In between takes is where we de- developed who these characters were because you know, we were together through the whole thing. Like, so on set, it would be very easy of someone of Jennifer Lawrence's stature to want to like isolate and go mm-hmm. away, have her own thing. But she stayed like right there with me. We talked, we, we, you know, we traversed the land of New Orleans together. You know, the unlikeliest pairing. Uh, but at the same time, we realized how similar we were in that. And, and just how fun and exciting it is to make a new friend. Like that, that, that feeling is always something that's really just like, especially as you get older, because as you get older, you don't make a lot of new friends. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like once you're older, you kind of set in your ways. You don't really get a chance to, and so, but also to, to, to get to do this with somebody who's going to meet you where you are. You know what I mean? I think each of us um, brought something out of one another that made us step up in a different way, but also never felt tethered and also never felt like we were leaving each other astray. Mm-hmm. And I think, in essence, that is what a true friendship is. And so that helped us really bond, but it also helped us build these characters in a way because we wanted that for them, too. Um, mm. The way that the script originally was is that you kind of were going along on this journey with Lindsay, and it just seemed like we were traveling with her, and these mm-hmm. things were like going past her or happening to her, and, and nothing was really sticking. Mm-hmm. Um, there was nothing really anchoring her to the need or want to be home mm-hmm. until James came along. Mm-hmm. And we were like, oh, well, in essence, this is where, this is where the story is. Yeah. Like this friendship, this possibility for the both of them to want more, mm-hmm. to actually be okay with staying. Um, there's a scene with us in the park where she asks him, why do you stay? And you know, mm-hmm. like, you're okay with staying? And he's like, what, you don't got love for this city? Like, mm-hmm. there's, all, there's so many things around the corner to remind you of why you should be here and one is sitting right in front of you. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, uh, uh, the development of our friendship did um, illuminate the, the characters a lot more and what their needs and wants were mm-hmm. uh, because we mm-hmm. we discovered our friendship in it, so we wanted to mm-hmm. showcase that as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I love, love all of that. In all of those discussions that you're having with Jennifer Lawrence, with the director, how conscious were you of the magical Negro trope and avoiding that? Very. Um, I'm conscious of it even right now. Like, <laughs> it's not something that I turn off at all. We know what these tropes look like of having a black man walk with a white woman because, mm-hmm. in essence, it's usually him serving her. He mm-hmm. pops in and out. There's never any kind of anchoring to who he is. It's just that he appears and we... And I sat down with them about that. I was like, mm-hmm. look, She's in his town, you know what I mean? He's here, he is an active person in her life. He is not somebody who is of service to her. Mm-hmm. Either he is a friend or he's not. Uh, and that's why we ended up adding certain things of like actually bringing her into his space, mm-hmm. like coming into his home, mm-hmm. driving his car, going to the places that he knows uh, because we didn't want it to be that. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm always very aware of those things, and, and I'm always shocked that mm. these tropes still exist, but they've been around for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. and we as actors and entertainers have to always figure out how to navigate that. Um, and what's really great is when you find people who hear that 
and are also going to collaborate with you to make sure we advance beyond that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it was very much something that was uh, always there. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to make sure that in the end, there was a human element of actual connection, of a possibility of these two people. That, that's also why we didn't want to make anything romantic. I was like, mm -hmm. they're just two friends. I was like, at the end of the day, what, why does it have to be more than that? Um, mm -hmm. And we really wanted to show the authenticity of who these people were mm -hmm. um, and what this friendship could be. So I was very, very aware and made sure to make sure that didn't happen. It didn't play out that way. Again, mission successful. <laughs> uh, um, a lot of the times people like myself will ask people like yourself, okay. um, did you create a backstory for Sensor Cat? And clearly you did here with this. I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna flip it around for a second. Do you ever create uh, future stories for your character? If I were to ask you, what's Lemon doing? What's James doing? Sure. What's Bastos doing right now? Would sure. you have an answer for me? Would you, that's something you think yeah. about? That's yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, ask me. What is James doing right now? James, I think right now is having breakfast with Lindsay, rolling a J. <laughs> uh, I think that James also is putting up pictures of his family. Uh, and I think there's more light in the house. Mm. I think that he's probably repainted the house with Lindsay. I think there may even be a little inflatable pool in the back. I think that there's a po I think that James may even wear a pair of shorts at this point mm. uh, because there's a possibility of something mm. that he honestly needed and wanted. So I do mm. think that there's a little bit like more lightness to him mm. for sure. Yeah, I love that. Um, with both James and Lemon, the two recent characters you played, Lemon especially, is very good at reading people. Mm -hmm. And I think James is good at that too. Mm -hmm. As an actor in Hollywood, how good do you have to be at reading people? Um, it depends because it is all about instincts, mm -hmm. I think. And you have to be very clear of the rooms you're entering, especially as a black actor. Mm -hmm. uh, there always is an antenna that is up to make sure that you know exactly what corners to be in, what rooms to be in. Well, you know, because it's risky. It's mm -hmm. very risky. And so I'd like to think instinctually we have it because mm -hmm. we need to know at any given mm -hmm. point in time where, you know, to be, where safe, where it feels comfortable, mm -hmm. where to truly, you know, show all the parts of who we are. And, um, and, and I think that you have to have it. Like, I'm good at reading people very well. I know exactly mm -hmm. where it's like, no, nah, I'm not <laughs> going over there. Okay, mm -hmm. this feels a little, this feels good, but mm -hmm. like, yeah, it's a good skill to have. What's the vibe you're getting off me right now? What's the vibe I'm getting off you? Yeah. Yeah. Very inquisitive, yes. very inquisitive, <laughs> and very and very cheerful. I feel oh. safe with you. Good. good. Don't make me regret saying <laughs> that. <laughs> I shall do my best not to make you regret saying that. Uh, I did want to talk a little bit more about Eternals, okay. um, which is a really interesting film for me. It, it gets better on repeat watches for me because a big okay. twist that happens mid-film that sort of flips it on its head. Okay. Um, what was your reaction to the reaction of that film? And did you sort of want that audience to sort of go and see it again to sort of see how you feel about it? Well, to be honest with you, I don't really know the reactions of Eternals. Okay. I made sure to release that um, mm -hmm. because it was a labor of love for me. Mm -hmm. I was very honored to be asked to play fastest. I was very honored to be able to play with that ensemble the way that I did and to be able to live out Chloe's vision. So I don't really know the reaction. I know that it's very mixed. I know mm -hmm. that it, we took a risk by doing something very different. 
mm-hmm. um, from the Marvel's White Boy Fraternity Club. <laughs> um, so I know that a lot of people weren't really happy with that, but what I was happy about was the inclusion and I was very happy about, you know, making sure that it reflected a world that we lived in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very, very happy to play the character that I played because, you know, there are all different ways of, for us to be heroic and to be seen. Mm-hmm. And I wanted that. So I'm not really sure what the reaction was, but mm-hmm. I think it's worth visiting again for those who had, you know, mm-hmm. a little crunch when it came out. Because mm-hmm. change, that's what happens sometimes. People aren't mm-hmm. ready for a change. People aren't ready for that. But I think mm-hmm. representation and inclusion is necessary. And so it's going to happen whether you're ready or not. Mm-hmm. So in that essence, you know, I, I'm proud of what we did. I think mm-hmm. it was a, a, a visionary masterpiece. I mean, everybody in it brought their game. Um, yeah, man, I'm always going to be very proud of Eternal. So, mm-hmm. As well you should be. Thank you. Um, have you had those conversations about sequels and... Not really. I mean, yeah. you know, Marvel is 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 a crazy place because yeah. you just never know which turn it's going to take. You mm-hmm. never know where you'll pop up. Mm-hmm. You'll never know what's going to happen, man. Mm-hmm. So, I'm game in any way that I can be. I'm game any way that I can be. I love fastest more than you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, any way that I can, you know, be a part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Pop in and out with the door Melage, maybe. <laughs> you know, I keep putting that out there. <laughs> keep <laughs> if, on if putting they, it out they there. They wanna <laughs> send me to Wakanda. I think mm. they should. I mean, fastest was around when it was good. So I mean, but anyway, that it would happen. Yeah, yeah. I'm down. Uh, I pitched that. Kevin Feige, are you listening? <laughs> From your this, is <laughs> this is cool. Great. Y'all heard that. <laughs> um, I also wanted to talk about Spider Verse. Uh, it's a film that I love. For the last few years, I'm telling you, it's one of the best superhero films of all time. Wow, thank um, you. I love it so much. And one of the scenes that immediately comes to mind anytime I think of that film is that father-son scene through the door oh. that you have. <laughs> yeah. Did you feel the power of that scene as you were recording it? Because it's a scene that I've talked to a lot of people about and it's impacted them in a similar way as it's thank impacted you, me. Thank you, man. Um... To be able to play Shabik's father <laughs> <laughs> was... Just a really great experience. I've done quite a few voiceovers, but none like Spider-Verse in Mm -hmm. that we are playing a familial unit that comes from New York, Brooklyn. His mother's Latino. I'm black, but he's also a cop. And my brother is Mahershala. It was was just, there was just, it was a vibe, man. And Mm -hmm. so... I think about the scene of me dropping him off at school, which was mm-hmm. actually recorded with me and Shamik in the studio together. So like oh, literally absolutely. he's sitting next to me mm-hmm. and the mics are up and we're just going. And mm-hmm. you just rarely get anything like that. And mm-hmm. and what that meant was is that we, the actors, had such um, an input in, in, in the souls of these people and in, in, in the backstories of them and the, and the feel of them because they just let us go. Mm-hmm. And when it came to that scene, I had already had such a great relationship with Shamik that I just thought about how important it was for people to see this black father really talk to his black son and be there for him and tell him how much he cared after suffering this loss of his brother. Like, I wanted it to be just something that most fathers, these black fathers needed to see mm-hmm. um, to, to really reach their, their, their kids. I wanted it to be a scene of just breaking down the walls, even though there's a wall in between them. It's such a metaphor, that scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think I just thought about how can I reach Shamik? You know, like mm-hmm. I was like, remember just envisioning him on the other side, because you know, he doesn't say anything in that scene. Mm-hmm. 
And it was also a scene for Jefferson to really finally say how much he loved his son and how afraid he was of losing his son in, in the same sentence. Um, mm -hmm. So I just, yeah, I don't know. I, I just thought about the words that I would have liked to hear my father say to me if I was on the other side of the door, um, mm -hmm. to just to show that, to have that be um, kind of a capsule of showing that that kind of sentimentality can exist between a black father and son. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, it comes to, we're all wondering how the sequels uh, can top it. Uh, I know you've been doing some recording work. Well, what's the sense that you're getting? <laughs> uh, well, we're in the works of them right now. Mm. Y'all have no idea what's about to happen. <laughs> you have no idea what's about to happen. You may be crying more mm. this time than you did last time, but you're also going to see, it's, 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 you guys have no idea what's about to happen in the sequel, and it's amazing. It's really amazing. Okay, very excited. Yeah. Um, in the 2018 interview, you said, I need to let these characters go, um, which I found very interesting. Yeah. It's 2022 now. How, <laughs> how, how, how much better how have you become? How dare you? Uh, you know I do my research when I come to interview Brian Tony. How could you? <laughs> um, we're working on it. Okay. We're working on it. I think a big sense of me feels like I have to be the, what's the word I'm looking for? The gatekeeper to them um, mm. to make sure that they're protected. I don't want to just release them out into the world without them feeling like they have justly been seen and, and, and cared for. But mm. we are close, man. We're mm. really close. I'm no longer holding on to them with mm. reckless abandon. Mm. I, I have at least opened my arms for them to to go out. I sound like a crazy person, but I'm telling you, I'm very, I'm much closer than I was before, for sure. Okay, that's good. Uh, final question for you. you. You've got this really nice mix of uh, Indies, Like a Causeway, and then Eternals. You, yeah. You're doing, uh, going back to the world of Godzilla and Kong. Yeah. Is there anything else that you got your mind on in terms of things that you haven't done yet? I want to be a villain. Okay. It's time for me to be a villain, mm -hmm. but that kind of villain that you root for, like, you know, everybody mm -hmm. was rooting for Joker when he was out here being a sociopath, so mm -hmm. I was like, huh, <laughs> I would mm -hmm. love to be a mm -hmm. villain. Okay. Yeah, and, and you're back for Joker too, right? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're okay. doing a Joker too? They're doing a musical with Lady Gaga, and <laughs> yeah, I don't. <laughs> Anything is possible. Anything is possible. Okay. I'm not going to say that I'll say no yeah. <laughs> to that. Anything but, is possible, like Fastos and Dora Milaje. Too. Yo, like, yeah, <laughs> man. Oh, that would be amazing. Cool. Uh, well, I look forward to seeing that movie when Kevin Feige uh, sort of sees this interview. It's like, yes. Uh, right, uh, that's it. Uh, but for the now, I'll get people to watch Causeway because it's great. I uh, appreciate Ryan, it. Ryan, thank you so much for talking. Of course, I'm glad we got to chat face to face, <laughs> yeah, man. For sure, it's a bit thank fun. Thank you. All right. <laughs> From my many wanderings on this earth, I had so much to say about imperfect fathers and imperfect sons, and about loss and love. I've learned that there are old spirits who rarely involve themselves in the human world, but on occasion, they do. I want to tell you a story. It's a story you may think you know, but you don't. A story. Of the wooden boy. Where am I? I feel as though you've been here before. 
the wooden boy with the borrowed soul. Be his son. Fill his days with light. We shall call you Pinocchio. I did it as Pinocchio from Shrek, but <laughs> this is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, based on Gris Grimley's design from his 2002 edition of the 1883 Italian novel The Adventures of Pinocchio by Carlo Collodi. The stop-motion animation begins in Italy during the Great War. Carpenter Geppetto loses his son Carlo during a bombing raid. 20 years later, Geppetto fashions a new son out of wood and a bluish wood sprite brings it to life, christening him Pinocchio. The sprite tasks the travelling cricket Sebastian with acting as the rueful Pinocchio's guide. Written and directed by Guillermo del Toro <laughs> and Mark Gustafsson, <laughs> my biological father, Guillermo del Toro, <laughs> and Mark Gustafsson in his feature directorial debut from the screenplay by del Toro and Patrick McHale. It stars the voices of... Ian McGregor, David Bradley, Gregory Mann, Bern Gorman, John Turturro, Ron Perlman, Finn Wolfhard, Kate Blanchett in a role you'll never guess who she's voicing, <laughs> <laughs> Tim Blake Nelson, Christoph Waltz, and Tilda Swinton. Um, so, I mean, there's been a lot of Pinocchios <laughs> recently, especially. Uh, how... I, let's start off instantly. How does this compare to, you know, a lot of the adaptations that you guys have personally seen? I mean, we've got the Disney animated one, the Disney live action one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there's the the one that um, Matteo Garon did before the pandemic, <laughs> 2019. He's done two. Um, He's done two Pinocchio adaptations, two. yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot. So there's a lot of Pinocchios out there. <laughs> Amon, how do you think this one compares? Like, does it? Did it feel tired? Like, oh, here we fucking go again with old Pinocchio. <laughs> no, it did not. Um, it's a big swing, and I love that about it. Um, and especially coming so soon after Robert Zemeckis's uh, Straight to Disney Plus Pinocchio, which was very um very it it, it is bad do you want to say bad <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No. <laughs> i mean feel free it 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 very much adhered to what that original story was there wasn't much um creativity to really separate itself and be something new here with guillermo and mark there absolutely is from the stop motion animation to the themes to the time in which it's set it felt very fresh it felt very new it felt like this is what uh this pinocchio story it justified its existence um if you're telling pinocchio again a story that as you say has been done to death you need to have a good reason you need to make it new and this absolutely succeeded in doing that yeah i think when they they announced in the news that this was going to be set in fascist Italy. And I was like, of course, (laughs) (laughs) of 
course, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio would of course mm. be set during that time period, and yeah, like the that choice is works incredibly, and it's it's he manages to kind of circle it back to the things that Guillermo del Toro is always talking about, um, like conformity and and masculinity, and who are the real monsters against us? Because who are the real monsters amongst us? Because Pinocchio is kind of like the anti Frankenstein. Because he is mankind's creation, but he's sort of chill, and everyone and everyone likes him. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, what did you think of? of um, I don't think Pinocchio could motion. ever be confused with being chill. <laughs> <laughs> he is like a really annoying little brat, <laughs> but wow. that's the point. No, but that's the point of it. No, but that's the point. <laughs> it's like it's like he's not perfect. He's not the perfect little boy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's about loving you in spite of your faults and flaws, mm-hmm. right? And that's like the whole point of him. So he's kind of like willful and rueful and all this type of stuff. But underneath it all, he's just like a very good person, like got a good heart. He's just, you know, he's not fully formed. And I think that really captures in the mm-hmm. way they do this whole thing, the way the setup of it uh, is really well done. Yeah. And what did you think of, of the stop motion? I think let, let's go there because... My God, it looks so good. Yeah, and I, I will say that I saw this, so I reviewed this for IGN when I was on the Manchester, I remember when I went to the Manchester Animation Festival, and I saw mm-hmm. it there, and I was in the crowd with, um, and in the audience was McKinnon and Saunders, who were the uh, the animation studio who were responsible for creating the puppets. Um, so that was a kind of like a nice little thing. Guillermo did a little like, Manchester. <laughs> Thank you. So what you're saying is... What you're saying is Guillermo del Toro is a master of puppets. <laughs> Can't believe that came from you. <laughs> I beat you to the punch. <laughs> that was impressive. Um, yeah, he is. <laughs> no, but it was really nice to be in the room. And I just think that it's gorgeous. And I love the fact that, yeah, I just love how... Um, and it's there. I love how, uh, like, unvarnished the whole look of it is. Obviously, it is, but I like the fact that um, Geppetto, you can see the dirt under his nails. Like, he looks tired and, like, haggard. And, like, even like Pinocchio, I think the fact that he's, you know, I love the kind of um, how he's built in kind of like drunken stupor like that. You mentioned Frankenstein, but I thought that whole scene that they Mm. did was kind of like mad scientists. Like he's kind of sad and grieving and it feels like, Oh, you're, you're making this viscerally real. Like this is, this feels you, you're articulating the pain of loss in a way that Mm -hmm. feels relatable to people because they've witnessed it. And again, it's that kind of like, this is not a children's film this is an everybody film. Animation isn't just mm-hmm. for children. And I thought that was really well done. Yeah. Like, I think the whole, the fact that, you know, Pinocchio is an unfinished kind of like puppet kind of cobbled together like at midnight. I think that all that adds to one, I think that's so Guillermo because it feels like he will, he's always trying to find the beauty in the kind of imperfections and I think that was gorgeous to see. But also, again, it, metaphorically, figuratively, he's also an unfinished boy and he needs a dad to guide him. He needs that person and it's up to Geppetto to step up. <laughs> and I think that's what's really beautiful about this film as well. There's like two storylines going with two sets of fathers and like 
what the pressure we put on our kids to conform to an unrealistic standard in their mind of what a good boy should be and how actually kind of like toxic that can that, that can um how toxic it can be and how much it can foster kind of just real sense of dissatisfaction especially like young boys at a really um impressionable time yeah like you said Clarice like big big comment on masculinity in a way that felt really accessible but also kind of whimsical yeah and I, I loved how they kind of looked a lot of the the puppets looked like the cuckoo clock figures there was something sort of cuckoo clock yeah about, which is obviously Geppetto famously in the story is always making cuckoo clocks um but at the same time there's stuff where like with their jaws the way their like kind of jaws would be moving and the lips it like you could feel the muscles underneath mm. which is so impressive there were so many shots where I was like how the fuck did he do that and uh, Mark um Mark Gustafson he worked on Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Fox so this is um his kind of graduation from that and the stop motion in Fantastic Mr. Fox is also insane, amazing. How mm. do they do that? So um, he's very good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, before we wrap up, though, I want to ask. Well, as you know, Mon, I'm going to ask you about because this is a musical. Mm-hmm. It's okay. I'm not going to ask you the question. <laughs> Thank but... <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what did you think the songs? added to the movie or maybe they didn't add anything to the movie what did you think of the musical side of it i thought it was really beautifully done really beautifully done um i think it benefits from the fact that it's not sort of it's like a big big numbers they're more like interludes between certain things and i feel they feel like that suits this uh film very well and you mentioned the songs. This is, I think, Guillermo's first time doing songwriting. Um, and I love the beauty and the simplicity of the lyrics. Um, and it really comes through in the songs. Um, and yeah, I mean, you can't, it's hard not to like a film in which Ewan McGregor sings through the end credits. Um, and he sings very well, which is very cool. To I to. think, I think we haven't talked about like just how funny this is as well. Like, yeah, you McGregor. Yeah, it's like it's my squadcast over. It's like I am a homeowner. <laughs> the way he just like comes out. I love the yeah. fact that he's like this kind of like writing his memoir and all that stuff. So I thought that was hilarious. Um, he's a penniless writer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's no way that's not a Moulin Rouge. Yes, I'm gonna go to the grave <laughs> believing that. Um, I, I, but I think you know with the songs. Gregory Mann, who's the young boy who voices Pinocchio, he's got such a beautiful voice. But like, you know, that kind of like musical theatre voice, but there's a little bit of huskiness to it, which just really gets you in the feels. And you're like, oh, um, I honestly, if you're right, I think the song's really kind of narrative. It, you, you're waiting basically for this to be adapted to for the stage, because this could be <laughs> yeah. a, a, a musical on stage. And it really like, you know, did the work of contextualizing emotions but also pushing the plot forward as well i will mm-hmm. say my one criticism is too many british accents <laughs> for a film yeah. that i don't like it when they do when they do a film where it's set in italy background cast 
have Italian accents or whatever, and then the, this person mm. and then the main characters are like, you know, no good wrong, the great voice performances, but I do mm -hmm. feel like I I I don't like it when we just kind of side we marginalise the Italian yep. accents and then just centre on like the British ones. Um, yeah, I felt the same way about Cubo and the Two Strings. Um, really great film, beautiful to look at, great action, all the rest of it. But the people that you're voicing the characters are not from the region that the characters are from. That's a problem. Um, but yeah, not enough Italians, yeah. right? Not enough, not enough fascist Italians. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone want to shout out anyone else from from the cast? I mean, I don't want to say who Kate Blanchett voices because it's so funny. <laughs> and I don't understand why she did it, but yeah, I love it. I didn't, it was so funny. And when I looked at the end credits, like, wait. You're like, what? What? <laughs> Yeah, so that's a nice surprise to people, isn't it? Yeah, that was mad. Let's not see. Let's not ruin that. I think Christoph Waltz <laughs> does like what he does best. You know, that very kind of like charming, charismatic villain who will literally throttle you without you without yeah. without you know taking a breath. Um, I thought yeah. he did that really well, and I, I will say I really like just on the adaptation part of it. I like the fact that. Um, it was really well done to incorporate the traditional Pinocchio away from, you know, I feel like we've watched the Disney. This, Disney has a lot to answer for because so much of like <laughs> our understanding of fairy tales are based on their interpretations of it, on, on that studio's mm -hmm. interpretation of it. Whereas what I really like, you mentioned mm -hmm. Matteo Garone's um, recent version, which I thought was really good. And that was a real faithful adaptation of it, like a real close to the bone one. And I like the fact that this kind of had was both that, but also had, as you said, put in like Mikhail and Del Toro putting their own like spin on it to make it their own. So like even the Christoph Waltz character, who is like the count, who's like an amalgamation of several characters, it still really worked for me. Mm. Yeah. 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 It's it's interesting the ways that it's faithful and the ways that it it does step away from it quite dramatically, but it all works. Like it still kind of circles back to the same ideas because the original uh novel is really about like obedience and mm -hmm. Guillermo del Toro has kind of gone yeah disobedience is pretty good sometimes though when you're in fascist area, <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go to uh this is on Netflix now mm -hmm. so it's stream or skip for Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio Amon Stream this movie. <laughs> Stream for me. Very surprising that it's you and not me. <laughs> is this like? Is what is this? A Stranger Things thing? It's a Stranger Things. Yeah. I was going to say, like, what was yeah. the thing that a mom would know and also Clarice would know? <laughs> it's, like... <laughs> it's an Eddie thing, right? I mean, it's a it's a Metallica song right. that exists outside of that TV show, but I mm. imagine. That's where the you're what you're referencing specifically. That is correct. Um, but why? But yeah. why? Why? But why that in that moment? I'm so confused. Oh. I was talking about Manchester, master, master of puppets. Oh, okay. Because I remember when you brought. Oh. I was talking about Manchester, and you were like, and I was like, who's did no, the Manchester? You're about, um, you're, yeah, you're talking about um, Manchester, and like you, the, the some of the puppeteers and the animators were there. 
and talking about Guillermo. I was like, and then the oh right, okay. So I was like, wait, Metallica <laughs> from Manchester. This is good. I have to explain the joke. Oh dear. No, Clarice got it. I'm just I'm on <laughs> Iceland time, <laughs> even though it's exactly the same time in the morning. <laughs> Uh, mine's mine's is mine, mine's a stream. <laughs> After all that, uh, yeah, stream it. I adored. The, I honestly adored it. Great, good work. I am also stream. <laughs> and can I give another recommendation? Patrick McHale um, also did this great TV show called Over the Garden Wall, an animated series that's that's sweet and kind of spooky. And Elijah Wood is one of the voices in it, and it's fucking great. <laughs> well, look. We were only going to do this interview if we were all agreed that this is a stream, but it was always going to be because it's Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> and I'm not going to allow for any back chat here about can my you, biological father. Can you imagine <laughs> if I said skip? Like, Clarice would have stopped the podcast and made her way to Watford to I beat the crap out of me. <laughs> my way out of here. Skip-bitty-doo-da. <laughs> <laughs> we do have an interview with the man himself. Well, the men himself, because it's themselves, the men themselves. <laughs> yes. Come on, tell me about it. Yes. Uh, so I chatted with Guillermo and Mark when they were in town for the LFF. At that point, at the time of this interview, I'd, I'd only seen the first 40 minutes of Pinocchio, but I was sufficiently impressed. Uh, so my questions were based mainly on that. Uh, we also talked a little bit about Blade, um, and w- in which Guillermo del Toro, being the awesome man that he is, full-on said that Blade, uh, the first Blade, was the one that kicked off the superhero craze, not X-Men. Um, because yeah, but that, we all knew that. Stuff. We knew that. We knew that. There's still people online who will fight you on that because... Yeah, fuck that noise. Um, fuck that. But, but and also, Blade uh, but, yeah. 2 still slaps Guillermo. <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah, I, I made sure I told him that too. Uh, so, so yeah, um, I think I asked him about what advice, uh, would he have for the next person to do Blade? Cause at, at that time, my friend, Jan Demange. Exactly. At that time he had not found Jan Demange. Um, but yeah, it's a really, really fun chat. Um, enjoyed this one and I hope you do too. Welcome to the Fate Back podcast, Guillermo del Toro and Mark Gustafson. How are you? Very good. Very good. <laughs> awesome. Uh, we are here to talk about Pinocchio. I saw 40 minutes of finish the other day. It looks fantastic. Cannot wait to see the full thing. Gem, I'm going to start with you. This Pinocchio movie is very different to what's come before. Uh, did you start with Pinocchio and then figure out what you'd want to say with your version of Pinocchio? Or did you start with the themes you wanted to tackle before realizing that Pinocchio would be the best fit? Well, I wanted to to tell the Pinocchio story in clay animation when I was very young, very much a kid. I wanted to shoot it with my Canon camera, <laughs> and uh, and obviously I couldn't, I didn't, <clears throat> but I did a lot of stop motion growing up and as a young adult, and uh, I had a company that did stop motion and makeup effects, and I thought uh, maybe one day we I'll be able to do Pinocchio in stop motion, and. Uh, I, I thought it was impossible without first figuring out the design of Pinocchio. The themes, I knew what I wanted to do. I, I knew I wanted to do a story about disobedience and a story about grief, a story about life and death and this and that. And uh, But then one day in early 2000s, I saw Grease Gremlins design for Pinocchio and I thought, this is it. 
Mm. And and the idea, why is this important? It's important because stop motion levels the field for the human characters and Pinocchio to exist in exactly the same world. You don't question Pinocchio's existence. It's, it's in the same world and reality than the rest of the stop motion puppets. Mm. I love that. And Mark, I wonder you could talk more about the stop motion animation because as <laughs> we all know, it's painstaking hard work. What does making the movie in this style do for this particular movie that other stars of animation wouldn't be able to? Well, I think we're making a movie about puppets with puppets. Mm. So that <laughs> right there, I think we're off to a good start. Mm. And, um, you know, it does, it sort of, it, it levels the field so that Pinocchio can fit into this world immediately. We don't have to, we don't have to explain as much. We can just get going. And, mm -hmm. yeah, the process is, it's very uh, time-consuming, and some would say, uh, you know, it it should have died a long time ago. And in fact, <laughs> I've heard people I've heard people pronounce it dead any number of times over the years. But as soon as they do, something comes along. Someone makes a really interesting film, and I think there's a there's a universal appeal to the sort of the analog warmth that you get from looking at something that people made with their hands, everything, every prop, all the costumes, all the sets, that human hands touch them. And we're not trying to hide that in this, you know, we're, we're embracing that, that notion. You know, there's, there was a thing that uh, we did, uh, years ago I worked on uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and we decided to let the fur kind of move and there was a name for that, which I always loved. We, we called it the mystery wind. <laughs> and it's like, how much mystery wind were we going to let go? And, you know, it, this isn't necessarily uh, us trying to make a tribute to stop motion animation. Uh, we're still making a film that wants to, it has its own language. I'm going to stick with you, Mark, uh, because, as I say, I was at the footage screening the other day, and I was talking to Georgia, who is a remarkable woman. It quickly became apparent to me that when it comes to working on a film like this, no is not a word in her vocabulary, uh, which is incredible. Did the final results always look like what was originally in your head when you dreamed it up? And as a follow-up to your previous answer, was there anything that you created with this movie that you figured out a cool name for? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh that's a good question about the cool names. I, <laughs> I stopped at Mystery Win. I didn't think I could ever top that. Uh, but I would say almost everything that we did exceeded my expectations. Maybe I should raise my expectations a little bit more. But the team that we assembled was so very talented, including, including George, who was head of puppets. Mm. And they really were there to service the story and to help us get to where we wanted to get. And this idea of building you know, these mechanical heads that were very, very complex was, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the easiest thing to do, but it was a choice we made so that we could give the animators, you know, a more intimate relationship with the puppets as they were animating. I love that. Um, Guillermo, there are times when I speak with filmmakers and it becomes clear to me that this was only a movie that they could have made at a certain point in their career. Yeah. How different would this movie be if you had made it earlier in your career? You know, the themes and the story basically would remain the same. The depth at which they affected me changed. 
uh, in the last few years. My father passed away. That deepened some of the themes. Um, certainly the resolution and the weight of the poetics of it. The approach we took, which I think is extraordinarily contrarian to many things in animation. In animation, a lot of people feel they're obligated to do pantomime or keep everything moving. And we started animating really quiet moments, mm. which is very unusual. We started uh, staging with the camera very much like live action. The actors moved for a reason. Uh, we started doing failed gestures, which at 24 frames a second, you have to simulate an accident or a, or a thing that is unnecessary. It takes three moves to take a pencil when normally animation would do it quickly and efficiently. So we started seeking things that are more mature mm -hmm. than if I had done it younger. I would have worried about the how flashy it was or about um, how uh, thematically in point is, but th this way we let it breathe. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of moments in which you lean in to listen to a moment between the two characters and it's exquisite. Mm. It really is, uh, you're watching actors, you're not watching puppets. Mm. So that, that quality would have changed because uh, I think uh, embracing the medium for its handmade qualities and his hu its human qualities uh, comes when it comes. If you could see another Guillermo del Toro film mm -hmm. in stop motion animation, which film would you like to see that and why? You mean the, that I made or that I'm about to make? That you made. No, that's difficult. I think, I think there is a, a version of many of them <laughs> that you could do, but I, I think that each of them happen in the right way. Mm. So it's very hard to make them better by changing the medium. Mm. I do want to do more stop motion. Okay. Uh, I, I, I really hope to do more stop motion, but uh, mm. this was so satisfying. I tell you, we promised uh, the animators to never vary the the mandates on this film artistically, mm -hmm. to never having to respond to studio notes, never having to respond mm -hmm. to screenings, test screenings and stuff like that, that we would keep that integrity. Mm -hmm. And in exchange, we asked them 100%, 100% of the time. And what exceeded my expectations was they did it. Mm -hmm. In the last few weeks of shoot, they were still turning some of the best animation I've ever seen. And it was a thousand days into the process. It's you know? <laughs> amazing. Um, you were talking earlier about being free of the images from Pinocchio's past as you yeah. were making this movie. Is that similar sort of thinking something you told the actors as well in terms of being free of past performances? Because oh, yeah. finding that balance, like when, when I hear Ewan McGregor's Sebastian Cricket, I can because I know Pinocchio yeah. sort of identifies sort of who that is, but yeah. it's at the same time its own thing. Yeah, it's completely free. Yeah, yeah I think that uh, we understood the cricket on Colori on, in the original book was a very pedantic cricket that gets killed many times in the book. And we decided to squash this cricket as many times mm -hmm. as we could and make it, a uh, make it a character that has a journey that starts the... The film was a realist, supposedly, and a very wise, a guy that thinks he's smarter than he is mm. and has the portrait of Schopenhauer on the wall and he is writing a diary he thinks he has lived. And then uh, he gains humility and, and, and compassion and love taught by Pinocchio. So rather than Pinocchio learning 
from Geppetto and the cricket, the cricket and Geppetto learned from Pinocchio and learned from his disobedience. Mm. You know, is uh, the opposite of the uh, intention of many other Pinocchios. This is this doesn't celebrate obedience and sameness and conforming into being a real boy, but being who you are exactly as you are, and making disobedience a virtue. Mm. Uh, Mark, I'm going to switch to you to ask about just the dynamic between uh, between both of you in terms of your, your both directors on this film. Um, what did, did you find that you were both simpatico all the time or would you be picking up things that the other had missed as you were working on this? Yeah, I think we were remarkably simpatico. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, I think that um, our sensibilities are very much the same. I mean, we're different people, so... Occasionally, you're going to see something from a different angle, but it's, we're always seem to be pointed in exactly the same direction. Mm -hmm. So, so that was great. That made it easy, and you know, because Guillermo has such a comprehensive understanding of animation and stop motion in particular, I never had to explain anything to mm -hmm. him. He, you know, I could just I could cut to the chase. Mm -hmm. And also, when he asked for things. Uh, he understood the implications of what that meant for us in terms of production, because there are things that are would be seemingly very easy, but they're very hard. Yeah. And you know, sometimes he would ask for those anyway, <laughs> which is <laughs> which he should. It's fantastic. But also, the the beautiful thing about our dialogue is, who you know, whenever there was a disagreement, we would just go back to the movie and check it against character theme. And story, and whoever hit those marks won the discussion. <laughs> Who won the most discussions? Oh, clearly I did. <laughs> yeah, <yes. laughs> no, there, there was. <laughs> there's something I want to go back. I have other information. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to go back to. There's this notion about cricket, and I never thought of this until just this minute. Like we t we tell the story. It's kind of from. Um, it's told by the cricket. The cricket. Mm -hmm. It's told from Geppetto's point of view. Yeah. It's the story about Pinocchio. But uh, Cricket, his journey is also a love story. Yeah. And I didn't really even think about it until this moment. Mm -hmm. He falls in love with Pinocchio over yeah, the yeah. course of the film. And you mm -hmm. really see that at the end, which I think is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it was... Uh, Patrick and I used to call it the Sunset Boulevard cricket. He <laughs> tells it beyond, beyond the grave, yeah. Uh, I love that. Uh, I'm a big film music guy, and Alexandre Desplat is one of the best working today. What sort of conversations were you having with him about what this film needed musically? You know, uh, from the beginning, I sat down and I said, I, I really hope we can make a figure that is memorable, either a waltz or a lullaby. And uh, I said, I hope that we can find something simply moving and uh, and movingly simple. And and then uh, Alexander said, well, I would like very much to try to keep all the instruments in the wood family mm. because Pinocchio's made of wood. Let's see if we can use marimba, piano, violin, viola, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, for me, he said to me, uh, fortunately for us, uh, in France, the French horn is classified as wood, <laughs> so we can use some French horns. But uh, we sat down uh, for many, many days, 
and in the morning he would say, I came up with this, and he would play the first day he played Pinocchio's theme, which is in the movie. And I, the only thing I said, can it, can it have one extra note? So make it more like a lullaby. And he did it, and immediately that was it. Mm. Other themes were harder to find. Mm. But he, we are very theme-oriented. He says uh, the cricket's theme, Geppetto's theme, Pinocchio's theme, and so forth. And I believe uh, you are making your uh, songwriting debut yes, yes. Uh, in this. How did you find that as a challenge? Did the, did the lyrics come quickly? Well, <laughs> as, uh, the story is, uh, at first, yes. Uh, Alexander and I uh, talked about the lullaby, the, my son, and I composed it alone, and he immediately put melodies to it, and Alexander said, you should write everything. And I, 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 I just said, but of course. <laughs> and then I went to try to write uh, Ciao Papa. Mm. And Alexander said, I think you need help. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we brought uh, in Cass, who, whom he had bought, uh, written a hit song in the past, and they were partners in other songs. And Cass came in, and we would talk about the theme of the song, some of the key phrases like... Uh, uh, what do you call it, call it, you know, mm. and everything is new to me, and uh, the ideas that the song would express, and then Cass would come in, and we would bounce it around, and so on and so forth. And in, in one of the cases, Patrick McHale, mm. uh, the co-writer, we co-wrote uh, the the Black Rabbits of Death mm. song. That's awesome. I can't wait to hear all of this. Uh, this next question is for both of you. I am just as excited for the behind-the-scenes movie of this film than as the movie itself. What are you most excited for audiences to learn about the process of making this movie? Mark, let's start with you. I think I just want them to understand that we made it with our hands. That it's they, the, and I want them to feel that, you know. And uh, it was a monumental uh, undertaking, uh, but it was one that was undertaken with love. And I think you can see that from the first frame to the last because we had such a fantastic crew and everybody really understood the aesthetic and and they understood the themes of the film. So every detail pointed in the same direction. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, we wanted the movie to have a very warm heart. And uh, I the fact that we had a family of, uh, you know, animators, creators, painters, sculptors, etc., that became closer and closer as the thousand year, uh, a thousand days, <laughs> yeah, a thousand days of shoot went on, and we ended up really, really together. I mean, this is remarkable for me. A movie this long, you end up deering from the original mandate. You end up having people disgruntled this made us more and more uh, a family and closer and closer together that is remarkable behind the scenes and that we push the acting and the animation towards places that uh, let's say if, if they have been seen they were still pretty new at the very least yeah let's talk a little bit more about the acting because the cast for this is great you got you know, got christoph waltz what did they bring to their roles that you didn't see coming? Well, I, I think Christoph, uh, I, I would like to say that 
many of them I knew what they were going to do because Ron, Ron Perlman, I known like my brother, Christoph Waltz and I had served together as jurors in Venice. Mm -hmm. So I knew his wit. I knew his charming personality. But he started singing <laughs> or started bringing movement to his voice and it was incredible. Mm -hmm. I was completely surprised. Uh, Tilda Swinton, I think we all knew what she was going to bring, but then she made us feel this ethereal quality of these characters in a way that was unexpected. Ewan McGregor just hit it off the park mm. uh, with humanity, with uh, fun, with uh, intelligence, everything. Um, I think David Bradley, I worked with in the past, and he brings uh, to Geppetto a uh, um, rugged, cantankerous, sort of stubborn uh, edge, but he gives him an enormous heart. Um, you know, Kate Blanchett, uh, we had finished Nightmare Alley, and she said, I want to work with you again immediately. Is there anything open on Pinocchio? And I said, a monkey. And she said, well, then I'll play the monkey. And working with her and actually making her make sense of the monkey lines and asking for a second or third take was great. You know, and Gregory Mann, who plays Pinocchio, uh, just was uh, completely natural. Mm. When he, when Pinocchio was sad, he was sad. When he was meditative, he was meditative. When he was wild and fun, he was wild and fun. Finn Wolfhard as Candlewick is, I think, a, a, a secret weapon in the film. He mm. comes from left field in the second half of the film and breaks your heart, mm. I would say. And I think, uh, all in all... Uh, just blessed with little cameos by John Tutura, who plays the doctor and, and is, does a remarkable job at it. Yeah, I love that. Um, Guillermo, before we leave, I wondered if I might have a chance to ask you a couple of nerdy questions because yes. you mentioned one poem on there. I love the Hellboy movies. Yes. Do you get a sense that you might be able to make a third Hellboy movie? Not at, at all. Point? No! Not at all. <laughs> Uh, for for many reasons, uh, uh, many of which are beyond my control. Mm. We I can tell you this: we did give it a college try, mm. but we we can't. Yeah. Oh, that's a bummer. Um, final question for you: uh, There's a little movie called Blade uh, yeah. coming up in the MCU, which you made a Blade movie, a very good yeah. Blade movie, which I still uh, really enjoy watching. What advice would you give to the next person who is given the reins for this movie? I believe they're looking for the director. I think right I now. think the second Blade was uh, trying to expand and bury into uh, a new territory from the first one. So the basis of everything we tried was in, in agreement, opposition, or expansion to what Stephen Norrington had beautifully created. I think I still think the first Blade made all superhero movies as we understand them possible. Yes, thank you. you I'm know. glad that you acknowledge that yeah. because there's a lot of people who don't. They think it's X-Men and it's not no, Blade. No, no, I think before X-Men was Stephen Norrington mm -hmm. with Blade and, and it, it just completely destroyed the expectations of a superhero movie into and pushed them into you know the future. And I think uh, my movie was a response to that, uh, trying to bring more horror, trying to bring crazier action and this and that. So, you know, what What can you do with the character? You can do so many things that have nothing to do with the incarnations we have. So it would be very arrogant for me to assume that they need my advice. <laughs> they can do There's The universe of Marvel's Tomb of Dracula is pretty varied and wide. Mm -hmm. They can do a lot of things. There's plenty to, to mine in there. Okay. 
Have you seen Werewolf by Night yet? Hmm? No, I haven't. <laughs> Looking forward I was, to it. I was post-producing this film. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Uh, Guillermo, Mark, thank you so much for your time. It's been thank a pleasure. You. Thank you. Hello, June. Hello, Jennifer. I've recorded some questions here, and I've left enough space for you to answer. What do you think of your new school? Which do you like better? Sunshine or rain? How was your day, girls? <laughs> it spoke to me and then it was just less and less, you know? If there's something you want to communicate, shh, you best say it now. Jennifer, Joe, how would you describe your personalities? I think you might be a bad influence on each other. It might be an idea to split you up for a while. We will move the girls into special education. I won't say anything. We'll get them to talk yet. Guilty or not guilty? You need to take care of it. You can at least say something. How do you plead? They shall be institutionalized indefinitely. We want... If you were telling your story... How would it begin? Cause you say it best. You say it bad. Well, you say nothing at all to anyone else except for me because I'm your sister twin. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, this is uh, The Silent Twins. Uh, I haven't seen this movie, unfortunately, but I've got uh, Martin and Clarice who are more than capable to give us their reviews. But first, what the bloody hell is it all about, Hannah? Well, <laughs> dear listeners, it's based on the true story of uh, June and Jennifer Gibbons who are twins from one of the only black family families in a small town in Wales in the 1970s and 80s. Feeling isolated from the community, the pair turn inward and reject communication with everyone but each other, retreating into their own fantasy world of inspiration and adolescent desires. After a spree of vandalism, the girls are sentenced to Broadmoor, an infamous psychiatric hospital, where they face the choice to separate and survive or die together. It is directed by Agnieszka Smosinska from a screenplay by Andrea Siegel, who adapted the book of the same name by Marjorie Wallace. The film stars Letitia Wright, Tamara Lawrence, Nadine Marshall, Trevor Etienne, Michael Smiley, and Jodie May. Um, so, um, so this is actually the second adaptation, well, yeah, second film about the Silent Twins, the Gibbons sisters, and they're still, still alive. Have you got either of you seen that, that one? Mm-mm. Yeah. No. Also, just just reminds me. It also brings up the fact. Do you remember there was that whole thing where on BBC Breakfast, where Reiki Ayolo, who's in this like new TV show, and someone said like, "Oh, it's woke to have a black family in Wales." Here's yet another example of a black family in Wales. So anyone trying to like suggest that black people don't exist all across England, shut the fuck up. Oh, England, Wales, Ireland, whatever. Shut your mouth. Anyway, sorry. Segue. Um, this. Um, this is uh, quite a difficult movie. I can understand quite a difficult one to adapt. I suppose, what's the kind of tone and vibe of it, Clarice? I think the the vibe for it for me and also what I really loved about this movie is that, I mean, my familiarity with the June and Jennifer Gibbons is that, like, this story tends to crop up a lot in... You know, like, oh, strange but true, you know, Britain, creepy stories, like, it, you'll be right next to, like, some shit about the Loch Ness Monster, you know. Um, 
And I liked that this movie really actively pushes away from that and goes, well, okay, what was actually so odd about this, about two girls uh, just deciding not to speak? They decided that they did not want to use the spoken language to communicate. What is so fucking weird about that? Um, And focusing on the fact that they they were artists and it was about how they wanted to express themselves and they they wrote poems and stories and june uh has a published novel the pepsi cola addict and their work is like now considered uh like a pretty important example of outsider literature which is people who like haven't <clears throat> who are self-taught basically uh and i i really like that aspect it kind of plays more like a like an artist biopic as opposed to oh look at this weird story blah 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 mm-hmm. um Mon, did you have much knowledge of that and also i think it's interesting that um you know this is a polish director who's so out of that and doing a very specifically black story and it was interesting at the mm-hmm. biffer awards on sunday night um where letitia wright and tamara lawrence Will give it won the joint lead performance award, mm-hmm. and in it, she, you know, the, she did say Tamara during the speech did say, you know, thank you to the you know, there's a Polish team, white Polish team coming in to tell this story, and I think there's always a question about like, this is so specific to a black female experience, mm-hmm. black female Welsh experience. Like, how do you think, you know, it, did it, did it come across? <laughs> like white people made it or was it quite um and Letitia's a producer on this I think as well Letitia and Tamara are producers are producers on this um I in general I do have that same sort of hmm interesting don't know when I hear that a white filmmaker is telling a black story but I'm also of the opinion if that filmmaker does their research um and hones in on those nuances then it can work um we just seen it recently with descendant um which i interviewed manga brown and joyce and davis for uh, a week or two a week or two ago for the pod um that was an example of a white filmmaker coming into a black story and turning it very well here it's sort of a little bit hit and miss for me in that regard um there are certain nuances from the reading that I've done on June and Jennifer Gibbons after the fact, which I would have liked the film to really hone in on more, um, especially when it comes to like they 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 did to speak to each other in their sort of in their own language from home, but we didn't don't really get uh, much of that in this film. The big thing for me, which I think they could have done more nuance for, but honestly, just to explicitly state it bluntly is the context that is what happened to the girls to make them the way they are which is the the bullying and the racism that they were subjected to we only get little hints of that here and there i think there's one scene early on where they're at a school and they're getting bullied and all the rest of it but that from the reading that i've done was a large reason, if not the reason, why they retreated inward to themselves and made that vow to only speak to each other. Without that context, 
it felt like that was very much missing from the film. The film very much needed it. Um, so, so, so that 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 to me is sort of my my biggest issue with it. Can you? I just think, so uh, on a kind of. I always think it's interesting with biographical films, mm-hmm. the time span in which it covers. So, so you're saying mm-hmm. it spends a short amount of time in their younger years because there are two actresses who play yes. younger versions of June and Jennifer. Yes. So, can you just give us a kind of uh, what's the time frame that we're dealing with throughout the film? So we spend about 15 minutes or so with those young actresses playing June and Jennifer as children. Uh, their names are Leah Mondesa Simmons and Eva Ariana Baxter, and they play them very, very well. And honestly, the first few minutes of this film are great. Probably my favorite part of the film in some in certain respects, because they break the fourth wall, they narrate the credits, they're hosting this imaginary radio show, there's joy, there's light, there's fun, there's wit, there's all these great things and then sort of smash cuts to reality and the world is dark and cold and chilling and this is the outside view of the world that uh, that people have of Gina Jennifer Gibbons and it works very very well they do that gambit a couple more times and it works very very well um and yeah once once we get the the the, to the opening 15 minutes of uh the young June and Jennifer then we sort of transition to uh Letitia and Tamara and they then play the roles after that. Mm. So let's talk about then the the actors, this joint lead performance. Now, I really love Tamara Lawrence, and I'm really excited to see what she does in the future, because I remember seeing her on, in, on at the Royal Court in this play called Is God Is, and she was amazing. And also, I think she was a standout in Boxing Day as the sister. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've also seen that this year has been Letitia's year, the woman has been through a lot on screen. So uh, Clarice, like, how does that work? Especially when you're playing twins, like getting that like mm. entangled bond. And I really liked your review, by the way, Clarice. I think what you were saying was like one creative spirit or soul in two, bo- the artistic soul in two bodies. I really love that description. Mm-hmm. So can you just like elaborate on that a bit? Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... Well, I guess I I was reading that, you know, through throughout the casting process, they were going to try and cast real life twins. Um, And they reached a point where they're like, actually, no, like, it's not the facial similarity is not what's important here. It's about, yeah, what what you said that I said. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's about, you know. Could be back to me, baby. And they are so. What's so good about these performances is that it's not only that they're perfectly insane, and especially the younger versions are really great. Like they have the same walk, <laughs> um, they sort of do things at the same time, and it's it feels natural and not overthought. But as they grow older, and as you get a Letitian Tamara's performances, um. You start. I really liked how they actually characterize the differences between them because there are, um, they have like these ideological clashes about what it means to be an artist and, and do you have to uh, be in love to write well <laughs> and uh, and they get jealous of each other's success and I think being able to to both express how connected they were 
spiritually, mentally, and, and even kind of within, they're always moving through the same spaces to express all of that, but also go, okay, but yeah, but they're also at times very different people. Like that's hard to do. And it's incredibly, the two of them are so incredibly good at getting that right. It was really impressive. Mm-hmm. And I suppose this has got quite a nervy, psychologically thrillery, jarmy feel to it. How does that, um, how does the score uh, play into that or reinforce that kind of, uh, I know, tone? Yeah, well, it's it's sort of a, mu- a musical um, because um, it she uses, director uses a lot of the writings, like Jen and Juniper's actual poems that they wrote and, and puts them to song. And they're sort of like semi songs. It's There's no real structure to them. And they're just kind of like, la, 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 la. Um, but I, I thought they were really nice. And I, I like kind of going back to what I said first off, like I, I like the commitment to just expressing these people as artists and being like, this is the stuff that they wrote. And that's, really important because they the silent twins weren't not expressing themselves right they were still speaking it was just through a different means of communication and i i liked how forcefully the movie like repeated that um so that and then you have also we should mention a lot of stop motion again stop motion it's the (laughs) weaker stop motion (laughs) Master of Puppets. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> had to get one in. Um, had to get one in. And and the stop motion is recreating some of the stories that they told. And there's like a story about a doctor whose baby has a heart um, issue, some kind of heart thing. So he decides to do an at-home heart transplant, but with the family dog. And I love how the dog was animated because the dog's like, burr. <laughs> 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 like, it's sort of funny. It's not funny, but it's also sort of funny. Well, it's gallows um, yeah, humor, I love right? the stop motion sequences. Yeah, it's gallows humor. My favorite part. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and... And I love how the puppets, the faces are really interesting because it's sort of like a sock puppet thing Mm. with like charcoal smudges for features. Mm. And I think that's such a good way to express how the twins saw other people where it's like it didn't quite, didn't quite feel like the same people to Mm. them. Like it's a really simple way to express that disconnect. And so I like you know, as a whole, I like how everything comes together, the stop motion and the music, and then, like, the fantasy sequences and the reality sequences in air quotes, like, all just comes together in a way that, I don't know, I came out of this movie being like, yeah, I get it. Like, I, I get why they did what they did. I think the movie did a good job of arguing that. Hmm. So, Mon, about that score. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I got, I got, I got nothing much to add. Cleese pretty much nailed it. Um, but you weren't as hot on this yes. film as, as she was. You said before, so I suppose it was. Yeah, no. As I say, like I do think it's missing missing that crucial context, um, that set up their uh, whole thing in terms of not speaking to each other. I feel like the film really needed that. There didn't have it, but I completely agree with. Um, 
but I'm completely in agreement with you on the performances. I think they're great. They are so in sync, even when their characters aren't. Um, and that's hard to do. Mm. Um, you know, there, there's even a bit where they're doing choreographed dancing. Uh, and it's, it's brilliant. I've seen a lot of that recently. There's a film, RRR, which if you have not seen RRR, you should do that because one of the best films of the year. Um, and there's a lot of choreographed dancing in that as well. And it just looks amazing. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I minded that a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, uh, the performances are great. Stop motion animation is great. I just wish that it had a little bit more sort of storytelling nuance and also that um, context, to, that establishing context. Because like this film's missing that. Okay, so the Silent Twins is out in cinemas. Um, it's distributed by Universal, so it's a screen, stream, or skip, vote, amon. Stream. Okay, Clarice. Uh, screen. Okay, cool. Uh, cool. Okay, so from one harrowing backstory to a torturous <laughs> backstory. This is Emancipation. Get to my family five days from this one. Emancipation in the 1860s, an enslaved Haitian Peter escaped, escapes from Louisiana to freedom. This is loosely based on the real life story of Gordon, named Peter in the film, a former slave, and the photographs of his bare back heavily scourged from an overseer's whippings that were published worldwide in 1863, giving the abolitionist movement proof of the cruelty of American slavery. This is directed by Antoine Fuqua. The film is written by William College. And it stars Will Smith, Ben Foster, and Charmaine Bingwa. So yeah, I caught up with Antoine Fuqua. He was in town as uh, last week now uh, to do some emanci- emancipation press. Um, I just spoke to him via Zoom, uh, and he was on good form. And um, we spoke about uh, the very harsh depiction of slavery in the film. We spoke about working with Will Smith. We spoke about working with Denzel Washington, the greatest actor of all time. Uh, on uh, the Equalizer three, uh, which I'm looking forward to, and it's probably a really good palette. <laughs> Sorry, I was after, expecting uh, you to say like, like I expected you to say like after working with him on Training Day, but it's like Equalizer three. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, he's worked with him on Training. No, Day. I know, but it was like so funny because like, yeah, it's greatest actor in the world. Worked with him on Equalizer three. 
<laughs> yeah, well, th- th- that's the film. That's no, I know, I know. It was I mean, just funny to me because in my head, it was I, like I would love to have had like a five-hour conversation with Antoine just about Denzel and Training Day because my I would have liked that performance. I would have loved to hear that, <laughs> heard that too. But no, in the meantime, enjoy precisely eighteen minutes worth of conversation with me and Antoine Fuqua talking about emancipation. Welcome to the Fate Black Podcast, Antoine Fuqua. How are you, sir? I'm well, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about emancipation today. Uh, I imagine a lot of thought goes into taking on a movie like this. What sort of questions were you asking yourself prior to saying yes? And what sort of answers were you getting that led to you saying yes? Well, the, the first question you know I asked myself uh, is, what's it really about? Right. You know, you're dealing with slavery and, you know, you're, it's an important subject matter and there's a big responsibility, especially being a black man to tell the story. And then I have to remove myself from that personal feeling and just mm. look at it as a filmmaker and ask, what's the story really about? And mm. so for me, uh, the answers I got back was faith, love, perseverance, you know, against institutional racism. Uh, inspiration. How can I make a film about slavery that's inspiring? Yeah, absolutely. And did you think about or go back to other slavery narratives that we've gotten, like a roots, like a 12 years a slave, even the underground railroad, and thinking about not only what may work and may not work, but also how you might be able to do something unique and different and put your own stamp on that era? Yeah. Uh, I didn't go back and watch any of those films. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, well done films, but for me, a lot of times the the perspective, the lens of slavery, is from the slave owner. Mm. Rarely have I seen a film really from the slave's perspective. And if you were, if we could imagine being a slave during that time and being taken away from your home, you had to feel like you're on an alien planet. Mm. So the look of it should feel that way. The harshness of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this film for me was more of looking at it from the slave's perspective, right? Um, that means also giving him dignity, giving him strength, mm-hmm. and most importantly, he had to save himself. Yeah. You know, in 12 Years a Slave, which I, I love, and Steve McQueen's a great filmmaker. I love, I love his work. But Brad Pitt saves Chiwetel. Mm. And a lot of these films, you see that a lot. And my feeling was he has to save himself. That's the journey. Mm-hmm. And he has to inspire along the way. That's yeah. the most important part. He has to get back to love, which is family. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The first 30 minutes are... In, in many respects, hard, hard to watch uh, for, for obvious reasons. For, for you as the filmmaker, as you're deciding what elements of slavery to put on screen, is there any option that you're presented with that you're like, that's off the table? Take, take me behind the curtain on, on, on those conversations. Hmm. Uh, there, there were some tropes for me that hmm. I felt that uh, I didn't want to do. Uh, there was, a, I didn't want to see them be whipped hmm. because there's nothing I could do as a filmmaker that could give you a sense of what that must have really been like. Mm-hmm. His back says everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 
Peter was in a coma for three months after that whipping. Mm -hmm. And he said he saw God during that time, you know. Uh, so I, I said that, that me and Will talked a lot about that. And we had a scene, really amazing scene that was written by Bill that we just removed it. We didn't even mm -hmm. film it. You know, I didn't even want to be tempted to use it. Um, I wanted to save that moment. You know, uh, there were, there, my decision process was, I only want to show the necessary brutality of institutional forced labor. Mm -hmm. That's what we focused on, right? Uh, in the beginning and, and the, the heads on the sticks and all that, that was all facts. You know, they did that too, as slaves came in to deter them from running. You know, the branding, all that stuff is all facts, is all part of the story so that people understood the context of the situation truly. And now it's just scratching the surface. I couldn't even go as deep as it really went. Yeah. You know, it's some bad. horrific things. So um, I just wanted to focus on things that move the story forward and help tell the story of the situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Being a director is not just about calling the shots when the camera is rolling. It's also about being a leader on set and trying to draw out the best performances and best work possible from everyone in the crew. Um, and I was wondering if you could take it behind the curtain a little bit in this respect. When you say cut on an especially heavy scene, what's the atmosphere like and what are you doing as a director, not only to give people the space they need, but ensure that they are mentally and emotionally ready for the next take? Mm. Well, if you think about your crew and your actors and everyone like your family, mm -hmm. right? If you're sending your family through a tough time and it's some, a hard conversation to have, mm -hmm. you know, part of your job is to make sure everyone's okay and then to inspire them to want to do the next piece of that scene because the subject matter is so hard. There's a, as you said, sometimes you want to turn away, but mm -hmm. you have to, my job, any director's job is to remind to be the north star for everyone mm -hmm. this is the reason this and again it goes back to your reason you, when you get your answer you have to remind everyone of your reason and your passion what's driving you and it, it's it's infectious it starts to spread and then there's days where they save my ass right there's days where i'm tired and the next scene is hard for me and Will will come sit down next to me and crack a joke or do something, you know, or my DP, Bob Richardson would say something or my grip would come up to me and say, no matter what, we're going to help you make this movie. And it's like, I got this big white guy, like six, two coming up to me saying, we're going to help you make this movie no matter what. Mm. That's inspiring because, you know, it's not just about me. It's not just about black people. It's about other people all coming together to tell a story that we all found important. That means a lot. That that's part of being a leader is also knowing when you you need inspiration. Mm, absolutely, and I could just imagine the levity when it came. I mean, it's it's hard to I guess have levity on a set like this and much other, but it feels like we'll oh. find a way to to make it work. <laughs> you find little things to make each other laugh, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, listen, we had everything thrown at us almost, and we had hurricanes, heat, COVID. You know, I go tornadoes everything literally yeah and no, all my sets wiped out imagine that i had to rush 
I'm sitting in the house in Louisiana. The hurricane's coming. It's getting bigger and bigger. I just made a call and said, I, I got, we got to go. We mm. all jumped on planes and shot out of there. And I'm watching all the locations get wiped away. Wow. And you can't get any information about anything. And all your crew and people who live there, you worry about. So I started to call them. I wrote a letter to everyone. Mm. Let them know I'm here if they need help. Anything they needed, I'm here. Mm. Um, beyond the movie, when I came back, some of them were homeless. You know, and they showed up every day. You know, it's it's really, um, that's the inspirational part. And the thing we all looked at, we all reminded ourselves of when there was tough days, mm. we're all whining about alligators and wolf spiders and heat and, you know, we, human beings, right? We, we used to creature comforts. Mm -hmm. uh, we'd look at Peter's picture mm. and think, Peter made it through these swamps for, I think it was five or six days. Obviously, there's no ambient light. There's no lights. There's nothing. It's pitch black, mm -hmm. right? You're, he's on his own, and everything wants to kill you that's in there. Mm. I think we can make it through some hard production days. Yeah, yeah. You know? it, does put, it does put things in perspective a little bit, for sure. That's what's inspirational. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Choosing not to show Peter Scott back, you're talking about not wanting to see him whipped, but choosing not to show the back at all until that moment. Um, it's an interesting choice uh, for me. Can you speak to your thought process there a little bit and actually filming that very powerful moment? Mm. Well, if you look at Peter's behavior, he has such dignity mm. and he's, he has no fear. Because one of the things when I sat with the script and went through the writer is I crossed out anything that said fear. He's afraid, fear. That, because Peter was whipped and he was in a coma for three months. He was thrown down wells. He was beaten, dragged, family ripped away from him. The family we see in the movie is probably not even his first family, mm -hmm. right? Because they just rip our families apart and use them and sell them, right? Mm -hmm. In his diary, there's a, there's a, this. Peter said he met God. Mm -hmm. Once you meet God in your worst situation, what can man do to you? Mm -hmm. Right? No more fear. And so if you watch his behavior, some might think he's pretty bold for a slave back then. He's not showing fear. He's not quivering in his boots and he's not doing that because he didn't have that fear. That he, his, 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 his mind and spirit were free. Mm -hmm. you, could, you know, there's only so much you could do to a human body before it breaks and, you know, we, we, we we're deceased. Mm -hmm. He's been there before. Right, these slaves were bit beaten, whipped, but you can't bondage a person's spirit. So his faith is what led him through. And so what my thought process was, was take you through the journey and then reveal to you why. Because if someone is treated this horrific, less than an animal, then you go back and watch his performance you understand that what else are they going to do to you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, so yeah. you want to take the audience. My goal was to take the audience on a journey and then reveal why. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, when you are, excuse me. Um, I'm interested to know what conversations you are having with your writer at World College about the dramatic license of the movie, because there's 
clearly so much research that you have done and that comes through the screen um but we don't know everything and therefore this movie has to go in certain directions what conversation are we having in terms of how far you could and should stretch that well you know everything in the movie is based on the facts that we know right and obviously there's there's people that call him Gordon online. Mm. People don't really know his real name, right? So as a, as, a, as a filmmaker, you have to make a choice and say, the most research that we've come across legitimately and the people we spoke to, his name was Peter. In fact, his name was Peter because I got a letter from Captain Lyon's family mm. when they heard I was gonna make the movie talking about how I was gonna portray Captain Lyons. And obviously their great, great grandfather, whatever he was. Uh, they, they, in the letter, they talked about him as Peter. Mm. So we confirmed that. Um, in his diary, he talks about having to fight an alligator off. He talks about the journey, you know, and he talked, and he was there at the Union camp and fought in that war. And his body was not found, you know. But it was tough because they left the black soldiers' bodies on the field for forty-five days. They took all the white soldiers off. They left the black bodies on. So a lot of them are rotten and picked over by animals. Uh, uh, so it's hard to really identify everyone. Mm. So as, a, a, as I sat with Bill, we would discuss certain things we knew that were fact and some things that we were kind of in the gray about. And then I had to look at it as directors, what would be the best dramatic thing for entertainment as well? Mm. You know, they, they didn't, um, that we could, we could stand behind. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, that's how that yeah. came about. Yeah. Uh, Bob Richardson's cinematography in this is fantastic. Um, I wonder if you could talk about working with him on creating the movie's distinct look. And also there's one particular scene that is underwater camera work that is just astonishing. And what, what, what are the logistics of that? Are you in the water in any type of way? How, how did you get that shot? Because it's incredible. Oh yeah, no, first of all, Bob Richardson is amazing. Yeah. He's an artist, yeah, I love Bob. He's, he's fantastic, um, very unique. Uh, the underwater work, no, we had Will really going into those swamps and stuff like that. Then we had to build obviously a giant tank and then do a lot of work with him when he's underwater with the whole, I won't give it away, all these different things. But mm-hmm. uh, but we shot 90, 99% of that on real locations. And then we had to obviously do, for the obvious reasons, uh, a little bit of stuff uh, controlled because of the elements, mm-hmm. right? You can't control alligators and stuff like that and, and those snakes, yeah. those water <laughs> moccasins, you know, these, they're they're there. So mm-hmm. there was moments where it was like, well, let's just let's get out of this swamp. Yeah. For this one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amazing. A lot, a lot of it's really there. Yeah. Uh, that's incredible. I wanted to talk about working with Will Smith. Uh his performance in this is fantastic. Yeah. What was something that was immediately apparent to you when you started working on this with him? And was there anything about his performance that really surprised you? Mm. Uh yeah, his commitment. Mm. complete commitment like he will will basically just gave his his body over to me he, he just he every day he would come to me and say i'm at your service mm. for an example uh when he runs into the water through the swamp across you see the alligators mm. he really did that 
I thought I was going to have to do face replacement. I said, there's no way he's going to do that. I had a bet going with Bob Richardson that there's no way. Bob kept saying, he's not going in his water. You got to do mm -hmm. face replacement. You got to do it in one shot. You want him to come across, mm -hmm. bit close up and go into the swamp and there's alligators. No way. Mm -hmm. And I said to Will, I need you to do this shot. Will says, man, this is what I do. Let's go. <laughs> and he did it about four times. Wow. And I just, you know, I turned to Bob and I said, he's all the way in. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I was, that was the beginning there. I love that. Um, speaking of uh, some, but well, I'm intrigued. This is your first time working with Will. You've worked with uh, an actor by the name of Denzel Washington a few times now. Um, right. Is he an actor that's still capable of surprising you or are you so in sync because you've worked with him so often that it's less about surprise and more about just respect and I know what you're capable of and I'm going to give you this, this and this. No, Denzel always surprises me. Mm. Oh, yeah. how, 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 how does he do that? I don't know how he does it. He just does it. He, just, you know, he, 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 uh, he has his process. Uh, he's true to the moments. Mm. He's just true to the moment. You know, it's like, uh, as a director, you know, you design a scene and you, you have, you know, where you're, you know, where you need to land. And then Denzel comes in <laughs> and he, he'll sometimes do something that will turn everything on his head mm. because he's he's in the world from his perspective as the character these days with denzel i'll say let's go back to i want to do what you did in this take here and he goes well, well he doesn't remember what he did he he's mm. so in it i'll say let's do what we did in the last take and he goes what did i say and i'll go the script supervisor and he goes i did that like he, he, <laughs> wow yeah that is what you call in the zone. Um, and you are working with Denzel again on The Equalizer 3, which is a movie that I'm very excited about. Mm. How is this third installment going to be different to what's come before? Well, first, it takes place in Italy. It's okay. all in Italy. Um, it's very, it's more personal, much more personal than the other ones. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to give away too much, but you'll just... <laughs> And it's the That's third a good one, probably the final one for both of us on this one. So this okay. person. <laughs> That's a good tease. I like that. Working on that movie after doing something as heavy as Emancipation, was that a bit of a palate cleanser for you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's fun. Equalizer's fun, you know. It's mm. like it's it's, it's um... yes, it is. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh Anton Foucault, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Be well, man. You God too. Man. So let's dive into emancipation and the slavery of it all um, and the depiction of it. Because I had a difficult time with some of the stuff. I, I think it's a tricky balance when you're making a movie like this. What is excessive and what isn't? I found the first 30 minutes of this, elements of it, to be a little excessive. Clarice, where do you stand? I, my, my issue that I had with this movie, um, and it's something I, I remember when 1917 came out, I mean, they're very different movies, but I kind of had a similar issue with them, is that, like, it is, yeah, it is like a really brutal film, but it's all very concentrated around like the bravery and heroism of the individual like the one hero uh gordon slash peter mm. um 
and it's all about like how he succeeds how he manages mm. to escape and there's like a scene where uh there's a, a bunch of of men are, are running away and they get to a river and it's like a crocodile sorry alligator alligator infested river um and Gordon, like, because he's a hero, he leaps in without a thaw and, and just swims across. And then there's another guy who, like, hesitates for a second and he is punished for that in a really, I won't yeah. say what happens, but he's kind of punished for that in a really horrific way. And, like, I found that scene made me feel really uncomfortable because, uh, as the end title says, I think it was 400,000 men and women escaped slavery and um it was not about exceptionalism having to be exceptional yeah and i i and the thing is i totally i've read a lot of interviews with like will smith and anton fuka and what they saw in the story and i understand that definitely there's some people who find that really moving and the idea of of imbuing like that kind of character with this this quite uh oh god i was gonna say like romantic heroism it's not really romantic but that sort of like idealistic heroism and i can understand what people see in that but it always like whatever genre it's in it always makes me feel really uncomfortable because it's like no fucking everybody was really brave Mm. like there was no individualistic aspect to it at all i hope Mm. that makes sense Mm -hmm. um Hannah, or did you want to Yeah, no, I, I mean, I mean, it just felt um, excessive. Um, the, f- the brutality towards black bodies in this film is just too much, um, especially at the expense of, like, actual soulful exploration of who these people are beyond being enslaved individuals. Um, you know, again, as you say, it's so focused on Will Smith's Pete like, there's barely any time afforded to his wife and kids who are kind of, you know, left behind. And then the extreme trauma they have to go through for survival as well. It's so, it's like, if they spent, <clears throat> it like, like, a, like a half the amount of time they spent on, like, showing black people getting verbally phys- or physically abused by white people, you might have actually had an, a really kind of powerful story of, like, resilience and courage and... Also, just like you know that that just just vulnerability and emotion of what it is to be in that situation, um, it might have actually been a worthwhile endeavor. But it's just laboriously uh, brutal to the extent that I found it really difficult to sit through. And especially, yeah, I, I I it's it's interesting to me that Will Smith turned down Django Unchained because he said he felt that. You know, he doesn't want to do a film about that's so focused. He doesn't believe violence meets violence. And I know everyone's talking about, like, oh, famous last words after the slap. But I also feel like, okay, you turned down Django Unchained because you didn't like that it was all about violence and that. But it's like, this is full of violence. And then actually, Pete also dishes out violence. But at least there's more satisfaction in Django Unchained that it's not just a one way street. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's inter- I just find it kind of like, as you said, the interviews they're doing, the justification for doing like this sort of slave movie, um, I just don't think it kind of checks out. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. Like, I can appreciate the nobility and the goals of what a movie like this could do in terms of inspiring change, um, in terms of starting a conversation 
there are people out there who may need to really absorb the messages that a film like this and that a film like Till is putting out there. Yeah, but I know we haven't even spoke about <laughs> Till yet, but I don't think it's fair to talk about yeah. it. But, like, there's a difference. Like, I feel like at this point, we know slavery, right? We know about slavery. It's like, what, mm-hmm. what, we, what different story are we trying to tell here by talking? There's a difference between... Um, committing historical marginalized history to screen and then actually just re-traumatizing the worst parts of it right and that's the difference between something like 12 years a slave and the underground railroad compared to this because at least this tried to understand the humanity of these people of these people and 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 emancipation when you say this you're talking about till no i'm saying at least a man like at least are the underground rail. no i'm not talking about till yet because we haven't even started Mm. You know, got to that point, yeah. yeah. But like Underground Railroad and and Twelve Years a Slave are two kind of films about enslaved people. That sure, yeah, it's actually quite violent and brutal, but it really captures like the humanities of these individuals and gives that space, you know, space for joy and all this type of stuff. Whereas Emancipation is just, it's just like constant, it's like the few, like the <laughs> it's just exhausting, exhausting to sit through and witness so much violence and brutality. And I just that's what I mean. It's like there's a way to do it and there's a way not to do it. And it's like, we don't need a reminder of how cruel cool slavery was. We know it. But how do we talk about, like, the history of that time in context? And I just don't even think it did it that well. Sorry. <laughs> I, really, I was really upset about this film. No, no. Believe me. <laughs> we've, we've had discussions about this film in WhatsApp and in person before this pod. And you know that I feel similarly in many respects and um, before we go to our screen or sorry stream or skip because it's on apple tv plus um i want to talk a bit more about what you thought of the cinematography um some interesting choices there from bob richardson as a cinematographer there there's um you know the alligator scene you mentioned uh Greece, there's a, some really impressive underwater cinematography um in that sequence in particular but was there anything else that stood out to you about the look of the film I found the color grading choice really strange and mm. I don't think I liked it. It's sort of a, um, well, to me, I don't know, to me, it looks like the effect they're trying to create is of a black and white photo that's been tinted. So like kind of maybe a photo of the era. Um, but I think that that has a real distancing effect because mm. it just made the film feel very like far away and like it's a photograph and, and it's like the opposite of what I imagine you would want to achieve with this. And um, yeah, it just it looked very odd to me. I wasn't I was not a fan of like the way this movie looked at all. Mm-hmm. Like I appreciate that they made a choice, but it was not a choice that mm-hmm. I was into. <laughs> I also we haven't talked about the performances and like yeah, we need to. I find that. There's something about Will Smith where, like, there's some moments in this where I do feel like, oh, that's really, that's really good, that's really well done, but the accent just took me out a lot of it, and I don't know what it is, but this is the second time that Will Smith's done like a specific kind of like non-American, <laughs> well, well, it's very First time being concussion. Well, no, that concussion, no, but it's also like I suppose that very specific sort of accent that's very markedly different from his own. And I just don't know if he quite pulls it off. 
Like, I feel sometimes, you know, you know, I was reading one review saying like, oh, he brings movie star gravitas. And I'm like, I think that's also the problem. He's too much of a movie star for this sort of performance. It kind of doesn't need a movie star, right? I, I feel like you don't want to see, I don't want to see Will Smith doing it. I want to see like, I was never trans, mm. I was never not looking at Will Smith. Whereas something like mm. Aisha watching Letitia Wright, I was like, she, she disappeared for me. You know, not saying mm, Letitia Wright's not a movie star, but I mean, well, she isn't really, is she? In the sense of, in the same way that Will Smith is, like that sort of like specific sort of, cap, mm -hmm. you know, actor, character, mm. star, blah, blah, blah. I think for me, he, he did, he was great at the part that was written because I think he's so good at playing these kinds of like, um, very, it's like eyes always fixed on the horizon kind of heroes. And I think you always believe his desires, but it's just a question of like, oh, he's great at playing this character as it was written, but like, should it have been written like that? I think that's my feeling about it. I think that's so interesting. It's like the whole thing. What does yeah. he, what does he bring beyond what's on the page? I think that's the thing. He illuminates very well what is on the page, but then I think. But he's not a newsreader. I have such issue with what. Do you know what I mean? It's like that. It's not. It's like it's not a newsreader. Like reading reading an auto cue, right? There has to be something else. He's not like Ron. It feels a bit, you know, the Ron Burgundy of it. Always like I can't even say what's on the script, right? Um. Yeah, but I think because like obviously him and Antoine Fuqua had the same idea about what this movie was meant to be, um, and so I think like. Um, so I think they they really kind of together and the performance really works at, at bringing up this yeah this eyes on the horizon total hero individualistic um, sort of epic idea of 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 this person the mm. Peter Gordon which were two different people but they got conflated is the background of that mm. um, but then it's just a question of like I don't. But does that work? Mm. And I, it didn't this, like this it is interesting. Like there were two main hurdles that the film had to surmount for me going into this film. One was the whole slavery vibe of it, and I don't think it did a great job of that, as we discussed. The second was this question of: Is it too soon after the slap? Are we still going to be thinking about that actively as we watch this film? And for me, I was able to forget about that, and it wouldn't like. 10 minutes or so. Because um, I thought Smith's performance in this was actually really, really good. Um, the slap doesn't so, yeah, bother me uh, anymore, just to put it uh, out there. Like, get over it. Yeah, <laughs> it was done. No, but, I mean, you shouldn't have to yeah, keep apologising no. for it. And I find it kind of actually just... You really shouldn't. I'm bored you about really it. Shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah. the fact that there's been 100 billion more ink spilled on that as opposed to other people having situations right now in Hollywood is ridiculous but probably a conversation for another time um let's go to our stream or skip recommendations on emancipation Clarice. yeah it's, i skip uh, yeah hannah skip yeah i think i'm gonna join you in the skip uh for this one difficult movie to watch um not much more to say. But I think Underground Railroad, what streaming service is That's that? That's on, on Amazon. That was great. Amazon. Prime. Yeah. 
Yeah. Although okay. again, so you know, it's the, not it's, it's not not difficult Sorry, to watch at points. Um, yes. But it's about yes. intention and delivery and what it makes space for, mm-hmm. and like that was clearly trying to make space for stories and again humanity and soulful exploration that emancipation didn't have time for really. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that's also down to like the director. I'm, I'm not. Because, like, you know, I love Anton Foucault, but, like, he's a very, like, brash sort of actioner type of thing. We're about to work very close to wrapping up. We've got one more thing to do. Very important. It's time for our... (laughs) Wonder Woman 3, which whenever they do, they put WW3, I'm like, ah, World War 3. Ah, scared. But it's not, it's Wonder Woman 3. <laughs> um, was promptly announced in the wake of the theatrical day and date bombing of Wonder Woman 1984 during the COVID pandemic. Now, under the new leadership of James Gunn and Peter Safran, Patty Jenkins' third installment has been cancelled. Cancel Each, culture! Yes. Let's get into it. <laughs> the Hollywood Reporter said that... Jenkins had recently submitted her treatment, co-written with Jeff Johns, and that Gunn and Safran, as well as Warner Brothers Pictures co-chairs and co-CEOs Michael DeLuca and Pamela Abdi, broke the news to the filmmaker, telling her that the project, as it stood, which I think is an important thing, did not fit in with the new but still unfolding plans. So that was that story went out. There's a a fracas. A fracas. I love that <laughs> word. <the> word. <laughs> Everyone panicked, and then James Gunn hopped on Twitter to be like, Slow hey. your roll. <laughs> Slow your so roll. he said, some of that story, some of it is true, some of it is half true, and some of it is not true, and some of it we haven't decided yet whether it's true or not. Um, and then he talked about how they're in a transitional period. Um, we're not going to make every single person happy, but we're trying. Give me a break. <laughs> 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 I'm trying to do Marvel and DC at the same time, and my back hurts. That's not what he said, but I'm speaking on behalf of James Gunn right now. <laughs> uh, so, you know, Wonder Woman 3. Uh, oh, wait, how do I fit this quote in? It, uh, life is good, but it can. <laughs> uh, Wonder Woman 3 was going to be good, but it could be better. Could it? Um, do I, does anyone, do, do people care about this? I'm not overly fussed because I think this is the thing. This is what James Gunn clarified. This is not saying that Patty Jenkins is getting booted out or even mm. that Gal Gadot is getting booted out. I think it's Wonder Woman 3, as it was submitted to them, is not working because they clearly have a vision for what is going to go from now on. And that feels good but Amon I feel like Amon I'm really excited to hear this because he was like I have so many thoughts and I really am excited I just want to hear your thoughts (laughs) I gotta say this is the first that I'm hearing of the James Gunn response (laughs) I completely missed it (laughs) Uh, he had some uh, spicy takes he was like like, James Gunn (laughs) fuck you man he's like oh James I retract that statement (laughs) yeah um, it's a very, very good statement. I mean, off, off the back of just the initial Hollywood Reporter report, I was like, this is not great. Um, 
because like look Wonder Woman 1984 had more than a few issues I don't think anybody here is going to deny that um but the first Wonder Woman like I can remember tweeting out an image that was basically Wonder Woman carrying Batman and Superman on her shoulders and because that is what that movie did for that time in the DCEU because Man of Steel had issues Batman v Superman really didn't work for me and we were all wondering like what the hell is going on and then Wonder Woman came out I was like oh, okay when you actually understand the core of the character these films can work and Wonder Woman in the DCEU was the really first big example of that so even though Wonder Woman 1984 had some issues I think you still owe it to Patty Jenkins to have her be the one to make another film and finish her vision, finish that trilogy because of what Wonder Woman did. When the DCEU, I cannot stress enough, like if Wonder Woman didn't work, I would not be surprised if they would blow it up right there and then because it was really, there were major issues. Um, so yeah, we, but reading James Gunn's statement, uh, is, again, it's a very, very good statement. I still have faith in him at this point that he is able to make something work out of this. It's just frustrating that the DCU has gotten to the position that it's gotten to because now it's just so messy. And I feel like part of the job that James Gunn has on his hands is to streamline things to a degree. Um, and that's going to be difficult to do. Like this is why Flashpoint is going to be important in resetting a few things, but are they even going to release that flashpoint? But this is the thing. Like I, I personally don't think they should, um, uh, for for reasons that we just do do not have time to get into today. Um, well, because if I start talking, I'm going to be talking about it for like a good 50 minutes or something. My, Um, my, but God, sorry. I'm not finished what you're saying. No, 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 no. You're clearly bursting. I just feel like my hot take is like James Gunn, man, Peter Safran, do your thing. Because Wonder Woman 1984, the more I think about it now, was actually just terrible. And I mm-hmm. just don't think, and given how shit Black Adam was as well, like, I think it, I'm glad that they finally got someone saying, like, and also, like, as you mentioned, the Zack Snyder stuff, it's like, let's, mm-hmm. like, draw a line in the sand and let's do something new. Now, I don't think, like, you know, mm-hmm. look. I don't know if I don't know if I believe that like anyone owes anyone to finish off anything. It's all franchise stuff, like and the way people go through writers, whatever, all that type of thing. But I like the fact that it seems a decisiveness on their part to say, okay, in this form as it stood, this story that you want to do does not fit and it doesn't work for what we're trying to do. And I have to say, mm-hmm. the 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 James Gunn DC stuff has been better, like. Just for me, oh, yeah. totally, the totally. Squad and Peacemaker. Yeah, yeah, it's been amazing. Yeah. I think it's been really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I also liked Aquaman. I thought Peter Safran's like he produced that, and I really enjoyed Aquaman. You know, if we can get it to be more aligned with that, like Shazam and all that type of stuff, let Gun fire some shots. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, how long have you had that in the chamber? I just came up with it right now. But oh, also in the shit. chamber. <laughs> Look at us, pun central. James Pun. <laughs> oh, Cleese. So, Cleese, now your turn. <laughs> the only defender of Wonder Woman 1984 in the world. <laughs> you need to give me the stone. 
it's just fun to quote. <laughs> um, yeah, I I feel like the thing is, and this is a this is a great lesson in like when you see a news report online, like read between the lines because I mm-hmm. think everybody when this came out panicked and assumed because this is what people always do assume that like Patty Jenkins had been put on a raft and then set adrift to sea. Um, <laughs> which is not what happened. <laughs> and I don't think anything even in that original report said that she would not be given the opportunity to repitch, you know, to come back with a new idea. And, you know, this is the thing. Maybe it won't work out because maybe what Patty Jenkins wants to do with the character is not going to align mm. with what um, Gunn and Safran want to do with the universe. And... If that's the case, then I think it's okay for Patty Jenkins to go off and do something instead. Um, it just, but it, I think, but it, yeah, just looking at what happened with Patty. I mean, I guess one 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 woman night name for wasn't that long ago, but you know, ever since then, the 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 Star Wars movie that she was going to do, she's now no longer doing. Yeah, Is but I think now they're responsible well? for what Kathleen Kennedy did. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and but... I think yeah, I think her treatment by Hollywood has been very unfair because you know, yeah, to to have some everybody suddenly turn on her in like the public sphere. But I don't think this is what's happened here. I don't think that's that at all. I I respect James Gunn enough and Peter Safran as well that they're not doing this to be. No, like, I totally agree. Fuck you, no, I can even understand that people I, were harsh I, on her. Yeah, I mean, I've always felt like I I like Wonder Woman. Um, and monster, yeah. And I respect her for turning down Thor to Dark World because. But this is what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like I think that having that context as well. It's like if Patty Jenkins turned down Thor to Dark World because she didn't like the way it is. I think it's you know having that now they're saying we don't like the direction of it. That's fair enough, and you can choose. And I think again, it's like either go back to the drawing board and reconfigure it and work it out as which happens all the time when you develop films I think that's also another thing it's like mm-hmm. do you know how many times things go through rewrites and stuff like that to get them to where they're supposed to be like this is just normal so it's mm-hmm. not about kind of like you know taking sides or whatever you know whatever like trying to like politics within it I honestly believe that James Gunn just like and Peter Safran just want to have the best story that hasn't got the hangover of the Snyder era where actually can go in and feel something that's more cohesive um yeah yeah no i you know all all of these thoughts are very cogent and and also can i just say that script was also written by co-written by jeff johns and he's not great (laughs) um He's he's, mm. he's 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 yeah. Yeah, he's and again don't 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 have time to get into it, but yeah. But um you know, um, if he's too much of Jeff Johns in it you know yeah, uh, you know I me, just, I'm normally like, yeah, Mina Rep, great. But not this Lebanese, half Lebanese man. <laughs> I just D C and their optics, man, it's just like right now, if this ends up going through, you cancelled Batgirl, you cancelled one woman. But it's you know you're moving the flash one week ahead, and all that news is coming out in barely to the close proximity to each other. And just like, man, <laughs> your PR department must just be, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but I kind of feel like that's on that's on us to not react to the way. I, does that make sense? Like, I feel like that's gonna make DC worse, as if we're all like 
overreacting to every decision that they make and i feel like that's like those are different people made those decisions mm. this mm. is a this is the first thing that has been set aside or cancelled since gun and saffron have taken charge um well they like changed that green lantern carrot but that was great for mm -hmm. the better um and i i feel like making forcing them to carry the baggage of other people's decisions when they've specifically been brought in <laughs> to fix that stuff mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and to make sure that doesn't happen again like that's why i feel like i was kind of saying this is more a situation of how we react to yeah. stuff as opposed to what they're doing internally because this is quite a normal thing yeah. to go and as you said like it's really normal in hollywood for them to go oh actually okay no patty jenkins this pitch doesn't work we need to go back to the drawing table and at no point in that report did they say that she was fired that wonder woman's going to be recast that wonder woman's going to stop appearing it's just literally the one pitch that they had existing doesn't function and i feel like there's nothing to me there's nothing troubling about no. that but um, i think what you said looks like the we i mean we here in our little podcast we're not overreacting but there was this someone i saw on the when i was like looking at this twitter thread from james gunn before putting it together i saw a reply from some again like Snyder fucking diehard stands like, we just want you to complete the vision that Zack Snyder put out. And this is what I'm saying about no one owes anyone anything, right? It's all creative fields, artistic and stuff like that. So I don't think Patty Jenkins is owed anything. You know, it's, it, she's done her couple of films. Sometimes it changes hands or whatever like that. She wants to come back and do it again or whatever. We don't, like, saying that you owe Patty Jenkins something, saying that we owe Zack Snyder the ability to complete his vision is like, nah. Um, but I did like the kind of, like, the we of, like, who you, who, who, who's we? <laughs> who is yeah. we you're yeah. talking about? I would like to be excluded. I would like to be excluded narrative. from this narrative, 100%. <laughs> um... I think the only thing I would kind of like, which will never happen, the only person who I think it might be owed something, or like, just deserved better treatment, of course, is Ray Fisher for Cyborg. I do think he deserved better than what he got. Um, and it's a shame to see kind of like, since that came out, he's done like the Women of the Movement, a TV series, I think. But uh, I'm still waiting to see what his like next big move is, and it would be a shame if that kind of like speaking up, you know, and talking to this thing, and also attaching yourself to the wagon that is Zack Snyder, has been detrimental to his career because I think he was great at Cyborg. I want a Teen Titans Go live action. That's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Actually, I don't want a live action. I just want another movie because it's so good. I think what you need, Hannah is an upbeat, inspirational song about life. Come on. <laughs> Please, sing it for me. Upbeat, inspirational song about life. And then they hit that guy and they're like, his dad's a cop, run! <laughs> that joke was so funny. Yeah. So I think I think we, we, we got all our feelings about Wonder Woman out. <laughs> Any more feelings? I think I think we're good for now, Police. Thank you. Thank you for giving me okay. the space to articulate my thoughts. Give me the stone! <laughs> you have to give me the stone! <laughs> ah, great.
maybe to quote. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in and happy viewing via whatever medium is safest for you. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It does make a difference, we promise, please. And tweet us any questions or hot takes at Fade to Black Pod on Twitter. I'm at Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. I'm at Hannah Flint on Twitter and at Hannah Ness Flint on Instagram. And I'm at Amon Woman on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive. <laughs> and Macedon. <laughs> and Facebook. <laughs> and Penguin Chat. On all things that Hannah and Clarice will be signing up to just as soon as I convince them to. <laughs> Farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black. Mm-hmm.